Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. If you've been following me on social media, you probably noticed that over the last 30 days, I've been posting my older and newer music clips. It was quite hard to be honest, but I'm nearing the end of the 30 days and I'm releasing the remaining tracks of my seventh album, all in English. So look out for that. Today we embark on a new series involving women, starting with Rabbanit Dasi Fruchter, a Maharat, who is the sole leader of her congregation in South Philadelphia. Next week we will hear from someone who has been studying Jewish feminism, and I do have an episode I recorded with several women discussing birth control, its challenges, especially for from women. I haven't decided yet if I'll be releasing it, but we'll wait and see. The throwback episode for today is My Crisis with Jewish Education and Women's Roles. The link is in the show notes. And that's it for today. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Rebanit Dasi Fruchter from Philadelphia. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here and really, really admire your work in the world. Thank you. I'm just super excited to be doing this episode. And we'll start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself, both professionally and religiously. So actually, those two questions are very, very close to each other because I get to live my spiritual life and my professional life in a single breath, right? There's a lot of overlap. And just to tell you a little bit about me, uh, I'm the youngest of four kids, uh, grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, in a house that was deeply engaged in bringing people close to Judaism. My parents met on NCSY. My dad was the band and uh, the boy in the band, and my mom was like the chapter advisor, and their eyes met at Havdella. This is like my favorite story. But the house that we grew up in was like always lively, always full of delicious food and nourishment. And really around our Shabbos table were so many different kinds of people, from Jewish people to not Jewish people, folks we knew and were friends with, to folks that were brand new that had just come off from out of the shul lobby. And I feel like religiously, my uh, closest connection to Hashem is the the way that those kinds of spaces create a channel to the divine, right? Like spaces where people that are really different from each other sit and make brachos and daven and talk Torah. It's just amazing. So that's the kind of place I grew up in. And when people would ask me when I was a kid, well, what do you want to be? You know, like everyone gets this question, what do you want to be? I when remember saying, <laughs> oh, sorry, when you grow up. Yes. What do you want to be when you grow up? Francisca, did you have an answer, by the way, to that? Uh, I'm sure I did. I cannot recall now which one of the million it was. Well, when I was in high school, people would ask me this question. And I was very type A, like very achievy, all these kinds of things. And I remember saying, I want to marry a rabbi. That's what I used to say. And this something didn't like compute about that answer because I loved kind of creating spiritual community, learning Torah and teaching Torah. And yet my career aspiration was about who I was going to be married to, which I knew I couldn't control or navigate on my own. That's not something you can control. So as I grew towards my professional career, 
I decided to get a master's in nonprofit management so I could like at least run a Jewish organization. You know, I could really understand what community building could look like, how to bring people closer to God. And while I was getting my master's degree in nonprofit management, I learned about where NYU, New York University. Okay, okay. So they have a really cool dual degree program in nonprofit management and Jewish studies. That's when I found out about Yeshivat Maharat. That's when I uh, discovered that it existed. I had seen something in the paper about it like a few years prior. And I went in for an informational interview and I left a student. And I ended up doing my master's and Yeshivat Maharat at the same time. Just watching the two things dovetail so beautifully, right? Like the the tachlis of building an organization and then all of the spiritual work, the halachic work, the training, the pastoral training, all the things that you would need to really do the um, spiritual leadership of building a community. I received smicha from Yeshivat Maharat in 2016. And then I went to my first shul. It was a big modern Orthodox shul in the Washington, D.C. area, which is near where I grew up. And it was not so simple, uh, but it was, at the end of the day, the most wonderful experience. I'm happy to talk more about it as as we continue to get into the conversation. But the bottom line of where, where I am now is that around four years into my job there, there was a real acknowledgement that there were not a whole lot of organizations of shuls run solely by women spiritual leaders. And I was offered some funding to try to make that happen in an American city. And I chose Philadelphia. And after a year of research, I went to Philly. And I'll pause there, but that's where I am now and running the South Philadelphia Stiebel. Okay, so let's take a step back and thank you for describing everything so well. Tell us what you yeah. do and a little bit about your community. Well, what is Great. a maharat? Tell us. <laughs> well, let's go back to basics first. Great question. So a maharat is actually an acronym. It's a spiritual leader, basically. It's a, it's a number of words that are strung together to create that term. My job is different than the job of my colleagues. I run a shul. And what that means is I'm responsible for also the business side of things, interestingly, but also... But running tefillah, figuring out what the spiritual perspective is of the shul, the hashkafa, answering halachic questions, teaching shiurim, helping with life cycle events, the full gamut of what that looks like. And I think what you're alluding to, Francisca, is that this is not like typical thing in most Orthodox communities. Talk to us a little bit about the culture and the backlash or maybe any conflict you had within yourself as you were doing your studies and your smicha. Was there anything or you were surrounded by like-minded women and men who completely believed and were aligned with what you were doing at the time? Or was there a lot of personal struggle and conflict? Great. No, it's great. It's great. I love it. It's beautiful. I still have conflict. I was just reflecting. I have a shul where like there are 150 people here on Shabbos morning. You know, like that's it's beautiful. The, th- the things that are happening here are beautiful. And yet I was talking to someone at Kiddush about how I still have internalized stuff around how women should should not be doing this work, right? It's still like the picture I have of a spiritual leader in the way that I currently perform it is is still male, right? So like the inner conflict is very much still there. And I'm so glad that I am able to kind of serve in this way to start 
deconstructing and unwiring that feeling inside of of me and, and I'm sure of others. I also worried a little bit about my community and my family. My grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi in 11 different places throughout the United States. It's actually like a, a fun story. They, My grandfather's family shared a two-family home with Elvis Presley and his family in the 50s in Memphis, Tennessee, which is just an awesome thing. But in general, I wonder, you know, what would he have thought? What would my grandmother have thought? What would my father think? All these questions. And as I kept doing the work, the trend has been the following. As long as I introduce the change to people at a kind of like tone they can hear and take in and kind of adjust to, I've found acceptance along the road. And in my first job, I remember quite distinctly that there were some people who just left the room when I started to speak. I became used to it. But I feel like at the beginning, I was so angry, right? I had so much rage about it and hurt, you know? And the hurt doesn't go away. But over time, I realized that it was all based in fear. And if I could approach it with a sense of compassion around that fear, I would probably be more effective at what I was doing. And I think I did that. Not always. I didn't always succeed. But taking a deep breath when someone says something really inappropriate or even antagonistic and trying like to what? see through the words. I don't know if any of them are appropriate to say. <laughs> I remember at um, after Shul one time, someone came up to me and said, you'll never be a rabbi. You just don't have the right body parts. Remember that was said to me at Kiddush in slightly more colorful language. I remember just feeling so floored by this and uncomfortable and upset. And I could have done a few things, right? I could have yelled at him. I could have grabbed the senior rabbi to intervene on my behalf. But I did talk to the senior rabbi. I talked to him and I like kind of breathed through it with him. But then I just continued to show up for that person. That was the approach I took. And by the end of my time at that congregation, at that kila, it was over. Like, he would never say that kind of thing to me again. That's just one example of so many. And regardless of the field you're in, if you are female-identified and it is a male-dominated field, you probably know the kinds of things that are said, whether it be about our bodies or parenting or just things like being called sweetheart or the lack of the use of my title, which is still very much something I struggle with. And that's those are all all kind of part of that. In the shul that you're in now, are you the most senior title at your congregation or do you have a rabbi there as well? As you mentioned, there was a senior rabbi at the DC shul. No, I'm the only spiritual leader here. I have had male interns before who've kind of worked with me, but I've kind of created this place and function as the, the sole spiritual leader here. And if anyone asks you, how are you different than a rabbi? Is there anything that differentiates you from a rabbi other than you being female? It's interesting because in many Orthodox shows, the rabbi does not perform leading services. Like that's not a typical thing culturally for the rabbi to do in many Orthodox shows. So there's almost zero difference, right? Like if you think about it, because there are people leading davening who are not me. 
And I guess the main thing to just know is that I give the drusha, I stand on the women's side. What might it feel like or look like to have the focus of the rabbinic energy on the women's side? Like, what might that feel like? Well, all of the prayer leadership is going on on the men's side. So what's interesting about that is that it balances out the room a little bit. There's more of a synergy between the sides, right? There's more of a synergy between the women's side and the men's side. And very noteworthy about our shul, which I'm sure you would jive with, is we sing a lot. We're a very, very musical place. And you could hear both sides singing at full volume. And I receive comments a lot about how strange that is like how different it feels to be in a place where like wherever you're sitting, there's a full volume singing person next to you. Okay. And the clergy, are they Orthodox from birth or are they mostly Bali Chuva? And this is the first Orthodox community they're exposed to. You mean the people who come to the Shtibo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a real mix. I would say that it's one third folks who grew up from and who are looking for a, a rich and dynamic Orthodox Jewish life that seriously engages with questions of modernity, particularly around gender, but not only. Questions about seriousness of the meaning of tefillah or of Jewish learning that is equitable between men and women. There are people who grew up right here in the suburbs of Philadelphia and from homes that are now living in the city and coming here and excited about this new frontier of what Orthodox Judaism, what Yiddishkeit could really look like. That's one third. Another third are folks like what you're saying, who've just, they would walk in regardless of what kind of shul this was. They're just looking for a Jewish life. And it's wonderful to meet those people where they are. And then the third category is interesting. It's folks from other denominations who are looking for something thicker, like a, a more regular approach to Jewish life. I mean, like, for example, our Shabbos programming is basically like a Shabbaton from Friday night to Saturday night. There's stuff going on all day. And what that means is it creates a Hamishness and a connectedness that you might not find elsewhere. So it's cool to see people there who maybe, you know, two out of four of Shabbats a month uh, come to our shul, but the other two, they go to a different uh, denomination of Judaism. So I'm assuming you're at shul three times a day on a weekday as well. Is the female attendance larger than any other typical Orthodox shul on a weekday? Because you, you talked um, about that thicker presence of women and uh, everyone singing yes. in a full voice, but I'm sure Shabbos is different than a weekday. And I would assume on a weekday, you don't have so many women in a typical Orthodox setting. It's so It's so funny that you're asking me this right now because I just sent some text messages to some colleagues of mine about our davening this morning. We don't daven three times a day yet here because we're just so new. We're like four years old. So kind of slowly adding weekday davening as as we get more advanced in our, our age as a community. But this morning, there were eight women and seven men at davening. Just like a normal weekday davening, What's unique about it is that we have breakfast after and then people co-work here throughout the day. Like they have their laptops and can just stay and work. You're invited. And I was just I was just kind of marveling about how even though there wasn't a formal minion, we sometimes call it a manion, 
around here, that it was such a vibrant davening, right? And so one of the things that we do here that that feels really important is we don't centralize the experience of needing to gather 10 men. Meaning, if it happens, then we do Barhu, we do Kadusha, we do Kaddish, we do all of these things. If it doesn't, we do adapted versions of all of these things. But regardless, we will never look at the back of the room and see, see a woman walk in and say, oh man, we're still at seven men. And I think that that paired with extra opportunities for women to be involved, of which there are a few, really just changes the dynamic of what it means to be a woman in shul. I don't know if this has happened to you, but the amount of times I've been number 10 is like, it. I have really hard memories from that experience. And I think that putting so much focus on that as if it is one of the Ten Commandments, like to, <laughs> to daven in a minion, really, really negatively impacts the experience of Orthodox women, at least in my corner of the world, where there's a desire for ritual inclusion. Talk to me about the type of men that come to the shul. I mean, they're very normal. I don't know. It's um, They uh, range in age from 22 to 80, you know? There are people from, I mean, they're not like expressly feminist men, I guess. Like they don't come here and say, oh, we're here because there's a woman leader, which is interesting. They just come because it's a good davening. And it's, I mean, maybe they do. Maybe they would say that if they were asked. But there is a real range of types of people who come here for all sorts of reasons that don't have to do with me. I think the thing that has to do with me, which is fun, is that leading in a feminist way is actually different than being a woman, right? Like I'm integrating certain values and perspectives into what it looks like to create a community, which many of my female colleagues have done actually across. I mean, there are women in the Aish community who do this. I, I think like there's a way that I'm leading that is creates a certain kind of space that both men and women are interested in partaking of. Talk to me about the role your husband has, meaning take a reverse space where you have a rabbi and you have the rabbitson. The rabbitson participates in the rabbi's role, whether she wants to or not, meaning it's it's something that happens by marriage. As you mentioned, when you were growing up, you wanted to marry a rabbi. So there is that assisted slash partner role. Talk to me about how it's on the reverse side and what, you know, what you're hearing from him, what the experience is like. Yeah, well, I have an interesting perspective because I've been married less than a year. So I feel like (laughs) I've, thank you. I've, I've seen what this job is as an unmarried woman also. And the amount of legitimacy and kind of, there was also like a lessening of aggression when I got married was very interesting just like a little note to myself. I remember writing that down. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, for some in, in some communities, there was something really scary about me being a single woman who was leading a shul. Like there was there's something about that double thing that was frightening for people. I it didn't matter to me, like I kept going and I think one of my crusades in this work is just reminding folks who are unmarried that they are humans <laughs> and fully realized adults. I, I certainly felt that way. And I think what was so interesting was like building a, a home 
a biased Naman on my own, right? Like hosting people, bringing people in, cooking, you know, just there. there's a certain identity that I think sometimes we do a disservice to people by seeing them a certain way when they're not married. But I will say that I feel there was like this jump in legitimacy when I started, you know, to cover my hair or wear a ring, whatever it was. And there was something sad about that, something a little bit like, wow, I there was nothing that I did here to merit this. And yet this is the world we live in, that something about me being partnered was like, let people breathe a little better. That's something very common with everything in general in the community. And so talk to me about how your husband's involved, if he is. My husband's actually the Gabai, but unrelated to our marriage. So he performs that function. He is an amazing chef. And then he helps host and like really, really, I mean, I got to say that one of the hardest things to do in my role as someone who was on her own was do all the shul stuff and everything an office of a shul does, plus host 20 people for Friday night dinner, right? There was something like really, really hard about that. So we share, we share now those responsibilities, but he does not have a special title or any special role now that we're married. And so having a partner in that is really one of the most important roles that my husband Daniel plays. But other than that, he he functions as a normal Stiebler, right? Normal member of our community. Let's go a little bit back and talk about the Maharat role in general. And for anyone listening who has no idea and learning about this for the first time, talk to me about the evolution and the history, what has happened and how it's viewed, at least through your perspective. I could uh, put on a different hat, probably, to talk about the history of women's spiritual leadership in the Orthodox community. It's pretty complex. I'm part of a corner of it, right? Like the corner that I'm in started, I believe, in 2007 when Rabbi Sarah Harwitz was given smicha by Rabbi Avi Weiss. And then she created an institution with him to ordain and educate Orthodox women towards spiritual leadership, which I took part in. And like any institution of change, there there was, has been, and is a lot of backlash around what that is and what that means. What's really interesting about this moment in time, though, is that more and more institutions are providing spiritual leadership skills and advanced Torah study for women, and therefore it's more widespread and there's like it's a harder to like poke at it right and be like well see it's it's destroying the jewish world i think so i don't know i that's not like the best historical overview i'm not i don't have my my talking points in front of me about yeshivat maharat but i know i am really grateful to them for paving the road of professionalizing this this position there are many, many yeshivas of, or seminaries and places of learning for women. But I think what was really unique about what Maharat was doing is they were giving us the professional skills to engage in life cycle event facilitation, dress show, the things that are specialized for the pulpit role. And I'm really grateful for that. I don't know. You'll need to bring someone else onto your show to talk about the backlash 
because that's fine. That's fine. But you know, <laughs> it's just so interesting because I used to um, be in that more, and I'm so busy doing the work now. I don't even know. You know, um, I'm so in it. Give us some examples. Let's say life cycle events. You have we have a bris milah, we have a chuppah, we have funerals, we have bar mitzvahs. How do you participate? And we'll move into more halachic issues, but more communal leader activities. How does that work on the woman side? Unless it's it's more mixed. I you know there are home brises, and you have the women more in the centralized versus in a shul where they would be separated. Great. Let's go through the life cycle a little bit. When a baby is born, there are a couple life cycle events that happen. There's a simchat bat or a zevet habat for a girl and then a bris for a boy. In both of those circumstances, in all of them actually, my approach has been to work with the family to ask them what would be meaningful and comfortable for them. And I think what COVID has done is give families permission to have smaller brisim, which is really interesting, right? Like sometimes it's become more common to do a home experience. But regardless, we do it after after davening and everyone gathers together, right? That's what happens. And interestingly, in that context, I don't do very much. Usually it's the moyal who's in charge of that space. But we do integrate special tefillot for mom, special prayers for healing. There's a special tefillah that I have her do in front of the Aaron to be back in shul once again after the birth in gratitude for just the travails of, of what that medical experience is. So that's for, for boys. Simchat bat we do either during Torah reading or after shul. Also a very beautiful experience there's a guitar for either of them, usually. My father actually comes to the shul and he's a musician, so I often use him in these moments. It's very sweet. And then for for B'nai Mitzvah, we also have those here. And there's a full range of what is possible. At our shul, women read Megilot. So Megilat Esther, Kohelet, Echa, all those different Megilot. And so sometimes a Bat Mitzvah girl will do that. But other times she'll teach a shiur or make a siyum or give a speech. They're all possible. And same with a, with a bar mitzvah. My educational approach is actually not locking a kid into a particular path, but helping them find a way to own their, their Yiddishkeit as a part of their, their b'nai mitzvah. I'm doing five weddings this summer, <laughs> which is wild. So that means there are five couples in our shul who are getting married, and they've asked me to officiate their their wedding ceremonies. And this is one of my most favorite things to do. It's really beautiful and tender, and halakhically, I'm happy to talk about it, but that's, that's one thing I really love to do. And then, of course, funerals as well are, are very hard and difficult, but powerful experiences to bring people together. I've also had um, some experience doing God forbid, a postnatal loss, right? Um, and funerals in that department as well. Okay, so talk to me about the halachic complications or anything that arises with a chuppah. Yeah, you went into the other life cycle events. Ultimately, my job at a chuppah is to make sure that everything is being done in a halachically appropriate way. That's that's what it means to like be involved in the kedushin, right? To make sure everything is happening appropriately. And really, it's ultimately like being a really attentive facilitator. I speak, 
I gather folks together. I set the tone. I bring up the edim. The one thing I don't do is I don't make birkas erusin, that first bracha under the chuppah, but everything else is done by others for the most part. I speak to the couple under the chuppah, and then I just manage the whole process, reviewing their ketubah with them before, learning with them, making sure I do teach a lot of chasen and classes, right? That's like another aspect to all of this. And then, you know, the edim are, are, are on. That's their job at that point to, to witness the marriage. That's pretty much it. I want to know more about your personal feelings. So anyone who's listening might be thinking, are you a feminist? Are you rebellious? Or are you just a regular woman doing the things that a woman is able to do within the halakhic framework? And I'm sorry for like answering the question sort of. And the flip side of it is, is there resentment? Meaning you found a place where you're able to fully do everything that you are able to do and you are you in a pastoral leadership position in your own congregation do you have hard feelings around certain areas is there any you know are there pain points around that as you do it oh yeah i mean just to to answer the question of am i rebellious right i think that's such a fun interesting question because the answer to that is I love my community and I I was given the gift at birth of like noticing when something needs to shift and like pushing for that. And so I'm not interested actually in blowing up the place I grew up in. I'm interested in making it so much better. And part of my strategy around this and and making sure that people stay tuned to the point of all of it, which is serving Hashem, <laughs> gathering together in community and supporting each other. Like, if we lose the plot there, then there's no point, right? So, like, I'm always thinking about what's the balance between pushing and making sure that we're not losing the plot. But there are definitely pain points. And, and something I, I actually know is that the work we do here is going to transform what Judaism is like for the women in the next generation and the work we do here and in other communities like like mine, like ours. I don't know what that is. I don't know what it looks like. So if someone came up to me and said, what's your agenda? <laughs> I probably would say to create an Orthodox Judaism where more people feel seen, you know, like that might be the number one thing I would say, because the Orthodox Judaism thing, we got that. I love all pieces of that, but I do think we fall short on helping people who are marginalized feel seen. And that that can cross way beyond women. There are so many people in that category. So yes, that is my agenda. <laughs> and that sometimes means that I get a little bit creative about like the minion thing I was sharing. There are things we need to do to shift culture around some of these things. And whenever someone asks me, like, well, do you want to destroy orthodoxy? <laughs> I always say, I love it. And we need to do better. Because there there are many strong women who are very passionate about learning or who want to have more within the Jewish space, who decide for themselves, I'm going to find that elsewhere outside of the Jewish world. I'll become a doctor yeah. or I'll become a lawyer or they go into schools and education that that's a space within the Jewish world where women have found leadership positions. That's why I didn't want to. I wanted to add the language of 
not rebellious when you do pursue the hardest, you know, uphill battle way? Feel free to comment. No, no, go ahead. Talk to me about being a post-psych or answering Shilas and because you did say you do everything or anything a rabbi would do potentially. So this is one of the responsibilities that a rabbi would have in their community. How do you handle and manage that? Well, the short answer is that it's unremarkable in that, like, I spend as much time as I can learning. So I remain engaged and fresh in all of the sugiot and all of the different areas of halacha that I need to be engaged in to be able to answer questions. I will say, though, I don't know that I would call myself there, there's like poseket with a lowercase p and then one with an uppercase p. What I mean by that is I've only been practicing in this role for, I don't know, eight years or so. And there are things that are way beyond my level of learning. So there are so many things where I turn to Rabbeim with many, many more years of learning under under their belts to address major questions that I'm not sure how to answer or that I need help navigating. And I think any of my colleagues, men or women, would say the same about many issues. This does not apply in areas like kashras. I do answer a lot of Nida questions. There's, you know, something that's so fascinating is that when I went to my previous shul, the senior rabbi there got almost no Nida shilas, and then suddenly I was there, and there were dozens, right? Like, so I do end up getting a lot of those, and it there's a lot of questions around fertility, too, that come up. But not only that, I mean, I got a great Hilcho Shabbos question yesterday about, can you work out on Shabbos? Would that be okay? And what are the parameters to that? So there's just, um, people really do reach out to me. We use a, a, do you know what Slack is, Francisca? It's an online communication platform inside organizations. Yeah. Yeah. So we use that in the shul. And there's a channel for folks to ask me questions, and it normalizes the experience of of asking and, and getting answers and engaging with the Torah. One of the biggest things that come up for women in pastoral positions is that, you know what, let me rephrase this. How would you describe Yotzot Halacha being different from Amara? I have an understanding of how it's different, but can you share with us? How it's different. Sure. They're, they're uh, specialized. They're greatly specialized. And I believe now extending to additional areas of halacha beyond Tarat Mishpacha, But I don't believe they're being trained to run whole spiritual communities. It's a very specialized halachic role. It's also really important, and this is something I feel really passionate about, politically, to be a yoetzet is actually more accepted than to be someone in my role in many communities. And I think something that happens a lot when social change is happening is that groups of people who are trying to find their voices get split apart and fractured by people who are doing that. So just to explain a little more is like, there would be no reason for all Orthodox women who are involved in spiritual leadership to come together and talk about what we're doing, share best practices. But because we've been fractured in these ways, there's so much to overcome. There's so much like resentment and just political differences and things to figure out. And I'm so, so inspired and I love all of the spaces that bring us together, even though 
it's like the political landscape says otherwise because we can we can do better than that i think okay <laughs> let me go a little deeper what i've heard Alaha say specifically how they don't give sakalaha they are merely more knowledgeable than the people who are asking the question and they're the facilitator of the information however if somebody needs you know a psak whether something I don't know enough to <laughs> differentiate, but they they refer to a rabbi when there is a question that needs to be like, is this kosher or not, or nida or not? They refer out. It, and it, just to simplify it again, it, if somebody always goes with a specific shayla and they get a specific answer, then they don't have to ask it anymore if that's the answer. They know the answer. So they're their own yoetz in that case. What I am alluding to is they consider th- what they're doing is safer versus Mara are pushing more boundaries. If if you are giving Psaq Halacha answers in how they're trained, I think they consider this to be an extra layer farther from what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, you would need to speak to someone who is a practicing Yoetzat because things might have shifted and changed in the last five years or so. But I think that's right. Uh, on some level, I can only speak about what we're trained around, but we are trained to, if we do have the lachic information and are able to be holding in a particular topic, to answer the question. If we can't answer the question, just like any other spiritual leader, we are expected to be humble enough to ask for psak, you know? Um, but you're, you're right that there's, if you go to the websites kind of of both institutions, you'll see very different language around psakalacha. Uh, That's right. You definitely will see that. I also found it interesting to hear you use the word, the phrase pushing boundaries, because it's been, it's been a while since I've, you know, remembered that that's kind of what we're perceived as doing, you know? It's been a while, like, just because, uh, as I said, I've been very engaged in the work here. But it's really true that a lot of women are trying to do their best in bringing Torah out into the world, but they end up being objects of a political debate, right? Or just kind of like this whole thing of boundary pushing versus not. But think about the dozens of Yoatzot Halacha who provide spiritual guidance to women who wouldn't otherwise have it. Like the question of pushing boundaries versus not versus... So it's such an external discussion to the work that's actually happening. Well, there's a lot of cultural shift and yeah. it's uncomfortable, and it's not how it's been done, and there's a lot of pushback, yeah. Yeah. And this is why I wanted to have this conversation with you, because I think many of our listeners are not exposed to the work that you do, and I believe would be very uncomfortable. It would take a lot of getting used to just showing up for, you know, a shacharis on a Shabbos morning. They would, they would just be, they would just feel like they're in a different space that they've never been in before it is so different it's i've heard a reflection though that when people come here they say to me after davening that felt really normal but also really different (laughs) which is like the best thing to say because ultimately it should feel like the the judaism that you're reaching for or remember and it should feel like something is shifting for the better. So it's a little bit of of both. And I also invite anybody who's listening to come visit or engage with me in conversation on this stuff. 
it is scary and it is hard to see the aesthetics of what it looks like to have an orthodox shul shift. Like it's a different look. And I acknowledge that it can be a little bit scary. And I'm always here to unpack it or answer questions with you on this podcast, but in general, too. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you yet that you would want to talk about? I think that regardless of where a community is in terms of spiritual leadership and women, I think every community, every Orthodox community can be asking, how can we reach towards making sure we see women a little bit more in our space? Not necessarily like in the Mechitza, not literally see, but how how are our nursing our nursing mothers cared for in our space? Or how are we making sure that a woman saying Kaddish is able to do so and be heard? Just whatever is culturally appropriate for the community you're in, there's always going to be a way to include more and to just think a little bit more intentionally about the people who are not yet being thought of. Women being the largest group, probably, but other groups for sure also included that in that. Folks with disabilities, folks who are not married, they're just like people who are on the outer fringes of Orthodox communities that I think that especially if you're not a woman spiritual leader and you are a rabbi of a shul who is a man, just like how much of our weeks, how much of the week is being spent thinking about those those constituencies. And just I think that's an invitation for any shul with whatever kind of spiritual leadership they have capacity to hold. And what is your expectations or dreams in the next 5, 10, 15 years? What would you like to see in this space? Well, I will say in the world of Orthodox feminism, I would love to see it normalized for women to lead communities on their own or with men who are partners, just like the OU JLIC has partnered roles for like college campuses. There's no reason why we can't be seeing that in shuls as well. So in that world, that's what I hope to see. And in this community, I just would love it to become even more loving and nurturing and a place of great Torah learning. Just this past Shabbos at Mincha, there were 50 people, 20 20 women, and the rest were, were men, and just learning Torah all afternoon. So more and more and more of that for our local community, and hopefully we'll have the opportunity to to share with others what we're doing as well. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Rabbanit Dasi Fruchter, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening until the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you don't know, we have a WhatsApp discussion group. If you'd like to join, send me a message. My email is in the show notes and I will send you a link to join. Please send in your comments and feedback. I always love hearing from you. This is the Francisca Show podcast on the Jewish Coffee House Network. And have a great rest of your week.